If you would, open your Bibles with me uh, to the book of 1 Peter. You can follow along with the insert found in your bulletin, uh, or again, grab a Bible on the back. We return this morning for the 12th time uh, to this letter written by Peter uh, to a group of believers in the ancient world in the first century, uh, scattered across an area of land that is now uh, modern-day Turkey, if your world geography is good. And uh, Peter writes to this people <clears throat> in order to instruct this young church on how to live uh, this new life in Jesus that they are learning about. My thanks uh, to Barry last week for filling in for me uh, in this pulpit as our family was out of town for a wedding uh, in California. I trust that you were edified by his labors in the word. As we jump back into this letter today and we get our heads around the situations, I just want, uh, around the situation that Peter is writing into, I just want to remind you that Peter is writing about what an exilic life looks like. Now, that's not a phrase we use uh, a lot. Uh, what does life as an exile, an alien, a foreigner look like? That's the way he starts his letter, and that's the way he continues his letter. Peter, by his own experience of walking on this earth with Jesus, as well as the Holy Spirit, who we believe inspired these words that he penned, he is guiding this new community of Jesus about living in a world that is not their home as they look to a kingdom that they long for, a kingdom that is still to come. And because of that fact, though we don't live in the first century, those, that very context, it fits us, right? We, we, we long for a kingdom that is not yet here. We feel increasingly out of place in this time and in this place. And so Peter, Peter's words have fallen, I hope, not on deaf ears, but on ears that recognize, yeah, that's us. We need to hear that. We need to do that better as the church. We need to understand that better. And so last time it had to do with our relationships to one another. Uh, my exhortation to us as God's people was to love each other like family. Right? That's the picture that Peter draws and paints for the church, is to love each other like family. The week before that, our relationships, uh, it was about our relationships with those in authority over us and what was the consuming theme of our relationships with those in authority over us. It was the, the S word, submission, right? We're to be a people who submit, who humbly submit. Now with all that Peter has written up until this point, this notion, this context of persecution for the faith has, has been in the background. And today, as we turn to uh, chapter three, in the middle of chapter three, um, we don't believe that at this point when Peter's writing that the persecution of these first century Christians had gotten real intense. History tells us that it is coming. The intense persecution upon these people is, is fast approaching, but they're already feeling it. They're already starting to feel the heat, so to speak. And so in this passage, Peter now puts suffering 
front and center and really keeps it there for the rest of the letter, for the rest of our time. It's been there in the background, we've talked about it before, but here it, it becomes front and center in a way that it hasn't, uh, hasn't before. And so listen as I read 1 Peter chapter 3, uh, starting at verse 13, and we're going to read, I'm going to read till the end of the chapter, verse 22. If you're able, I'd invite you to stand for the reading of God's word this morning in honor of his word. 1 Peter chapter 3, starting at verse 13. Listen as I read. This is God's holy word. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile you, excuse me, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were, safely, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Let's give him... There are lots of ways that we could talk about and pick apart this passage. Some of it is familiar to you. Some of it is probably a little mind-blowing and boggling to you. I want to focus this morning's message around this idea of being defensive. That ours, as you see the sermon title in your bulletin, ours is a defensive faith. There's certainly a negative way for us to think about that word, right? We say to one another, maybe you said it to your spouse this morning, don't be so defensive, right? We say in a pejorative way to people who are overly concerned with their reputation or our intentions, but of course there's a positive way to think about defensiveness. We don't take our kids, at least I hope you don't take your kids to offensive driving school, right? You take them to defensive driving school because you want them to learn not to be aggressive and reckless drivers on the road, but you want to be those, you want to learn them 
You want them to learn to be those who are ready to anticipate and to react to the actions of those around them for their good and for the good of others. In regards to one faith, that's what the Lord is after. That's what Peter is after. That his original hearers in the first century and that us who sit here today would learn what it means to have a defensive faith. And of course, when we talk about defending our faith, we could go on all sorts of flights of fancy, on arguments and that kind of stuff. I don't want to go there today. I want to stick, hopefully, to the text and to what Peter exhorts us to do. We've gone through Sunday school classes where we've looked at the reason for God. We've gone through other uh, situations and, and trainings where we have talked about what it means to defend our faith. But in these verses, Peter gives us two simple admonitions about how to have a defensive faith, how to be defensive. But he not only gives us those admonitions, but he tells us how to do it. And that's what I particularly appreciate about Peter and about this passage. So two things, for those of you who are taking notes, especially our kiddos, two points, and the first one is this. Defend yourselves against fear. Now, of course, I'm speaking to the church. Peter is speaking to the church. So I'm assuming that you are the people of God, recognizing that some of you in here may not yet be a child of God. But you, the church, are called to defend yourselves against fear. Now, now we live in a fearful world right? We've, we've talked about this many times. There is much out there to harm us, right? The masks that people are wearing in public is just a, a daily constant reminder of the world in which we live. But the the fear that Peter is addressing, the fear that is coming across or against the church of Jesus here in the first century is not one of of terrorism or viruses. As I've said already, it's one of, of persecution. They are feeling it, the ostracism, the mockery, the, the minimizing of who they are. And particularly, as Peter has already addressed, it's those in authority who are bringing these accusations, who are bringing these charges, who are bringing this mockery against the people of God. And and that that is even cause for greater concern because they're a minority. Fear looms large. And these people in the first century are seeking to follow Jesus faithfully, to simply do good to those around them, to live quiet and peaceful lives, and yet they are being threatened. And so Peter says, matter-of-factly, have no fear of them, nor be troubled. And we say, great, Peter, we'll try to do that. How do we do that? And he says, let me tell you how. He reminds us what the Bible teaches throughout. And that is that there must be an exchange. There must be an exchange. 
This is the scriptural path for fighting fear, any kind of fear, whether it be fear of persecution, whether it be fear of something else. He said it already matter-of-factly back in chapter 2, verse 17, for those who've been here for weeks. He says, fear God. This was in the context of of the challenge of submitting to human institutions. He says, fear God. That's the exchange. Don't fear them, fear God. And here he says in our passage, he says, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. In other words, fear Jesus. Fear Jesus for who he is. And Peter, of course, is leaning on a wealth of scripture that we've looked at in part, but particularly he's leaning on Isaiah 8. Let me read Isaiah 8, verses 12 and 13. He says, do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts Him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. That's what Peter, who knew the Old Testament well, is is picking from in Isaiah chapter 8. And remember, all that he writes here is in the context of chapter 3, verse 12, which is where we left last time we were here. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, the face of the Lord against those who do evil. That quote, remember, was from Psalm 34. Psalm 34, which also says in verse 9, fear the Lord, for those who fear him lack no good thing. So for the believer, for the follower of Jesus, and this is all over the scriptures, of course, fear of man is overcome by fear of God, by hallowing his name, as we just prayed a few minutes ago, by consistently thinking big thoughts of him. Big thoughts that are even insufficient for us ourselves to fully grasp. We must make God big and people small. We must put God in the place he rightfully deserves and people in the place that they need to be. Because a fear and an awe and a worship of God consumes all of other fears, especially the fear of man. Listen to the psalmist in Psalm 56. In God whose word I praise, in the Lord whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? Listen to Jesus' words to his followers in Matthew 10. Because of men, they will deliver you over to courts. They will flog you in the synagogues. You will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake. Have no fear of them. Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And of course, it sounds easy to do. Or at least we can say it very simply. But it's hard, right? This is hard. Especially when the heat in our lives gets gets turned up. 
This is why defending yourselves against fear begins now by flooding your heart with thoughts of Jesus. Verse 22, look at it with me. The Lord who is holy proclaims, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Peter says, put your fear there. That's how you do this. That's how you defend yourselves against fear. And remember Peter, man, Peter, Peter had to learn this himself. He had to learn this through experience, right? Peter was the guy that was once huddled in the courtyard of the high priests when Jesus was being arrested and betrayed and he was cursing those who said that they had seen him with Jesus. And he says, no, not me. And he denied Jesus in his very presence because he was so scared. And then weeks later, weeks later in Acts 5, he stands before the high priest who dragged Jesus to a cross and he says this, we must obey God rather than man. The God of our fathers raised Jesus whom you killed by hanging on a tree when they that is the high priest and the leaders, when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill him. And so they beat him and they let him go. And Peter rejoiced and kept on preaching. What happened? What happened to Peter in that matter of weeks? Well, among other things, the cross happened and the resurrection happened. Jesus had transformed Peter's understanding of who he was. And he created such an awe and a fear in Peter that it gripped Peter's life and he would never be the same. And Peter says now to the church, may we learn to do the same, to defend ourselves against fear by pressing in to the glory of Jesus, the one who rose, the one who reigns, the one who rules, the one who knows, and the one who is coming again. So defend yourselves against fear. That's the first simple admonition. And the second is this. Defend the hope that is in you. Defend the hope that is in you. This is a natural progression of a heart that loves Jesus. As one commentator helpfully wrote, we sanctify the Lord in, excuse me, we sanctify the Lord Christ in our hearts. That is the end of fear. We sanctify Christ in our words, and that is the start of witness. And that's what Peter's after here with the church. He's after witness. Let me ask you a question. Do you live a provocative life? Do you live a provocative life? Do you prioritize things? Do you do things? Do you abstain from things? Do you give in such a way? Do you risk in such a way where people around you, whether it be at work, whether it be in your neighborhood, whether it be in your family, where they ask you, why? Why are you doing that? You see, there's an assumption that Peter seems to be making as he writes to the church here. And the assumption that he's making is that his hearers are going to be challenged about the decisions that they make, about the stands that they have made, right? The unbeliever, seemingly so in this passage, the unbeliever is initiating the conversation. In Acts 26, they accuse Paul of being simply crazy, 
out of his mind. And here in the first century, these Christians are being challenged in the same type of way. And Peter says that's good, because you don't need to fear them. And because not only the questioning, but often the suffering that results is opening a door of witness. It's opening an opportunity of witness. Now hear me when I say this, I'm not saying that there is never a time or a place where we as Christians ought not to be bold in the gospel, where we ought to be the challengers, where we ought to be the questioners. There are times and places where that is true. We ought to be the challengers. We ought to be the questioners. But Peter here is talking about these times when you're attacked, when you're slandered, when you're going on the defensive because of a stand that you've made, and he says these are ripe gospel moments, and so seize them, Peter states. Don't, don't seize them with aggression. Don't seize them seeking to overpower. Don't seize them with, with this idea that I've got to win this argument or I've got to seal this deal. But how does he say to seize this opportunity? Do it with gentleness and respect. Come on, Peter. Why does he start here? Maybe because he knows that at times we can get all spun up and we can get excited and we can become overpowering. Peter says, no need. No need. Defend the hope that is in you with gentleness, with respect, with humility. And just let the Spirit do his thing. It's one of the joys of being a reformed believer is that there's not this pressure on us. I was talking about this with somebody just last week when I was away. I was talking to a friend of mine and we were talking about how a life of ministry, not just my life, but my life acutely, but all of our lives because we're all ministering in the name of Christ, that a life of ministry means that so often we're a part of a segment of people's lives, right? If you think about lives, people's lives in this long line from beginning to end, very rarely are we part of people's lives from the very inception or, or the birth of their faith to, to the end. No, we're just part of a, a little segment. We're either a seed, our words or our lives, our ministry was either a, a seed that was planted or a a drop of water that was given or a, a weed that was pulled up or, or a, a branch that was pruned and man, there's still some pain there. I mean, th- that's, that's the way it goes. But it's okay. Because even as people leave us, we know that the Lord's work doesn't leave them and the Spirit's work doesn't leave them And so in humility, we defend our beliefs. We are free to not berate or back in a corner. We're free to be misunderstood. We're free to be disagreed with. We're free to even be mocked. That's the what. But what about the how? Okay, well here, 
who you gotta strap in. Here's the short answer of the how. It's gonna take a minute to explain. You do this, Church of Jesus. You defend the hope that is in you, not only fearing God, but knowing that Christ is in you as you defend, and that he has been at this for millennia. He's been at this for a long time. Now now let me explain what I mean by that statement, because that statement is an attempted summation of verses 18 and 19. Let me read them. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Now that's just the gospel. That's the salvific exchange that we all need, right? Christ's righteousness for our sin. Yes, let's exchange so that I can be right with God. But then these words after, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they did not formally obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. Is that clear? Clear as mud? Let me begin by reading Martin Luther. Yeah, 95 Theses, nailing on the door, that Martin Luther. Reading his, his words about these verses, he says, a wonderful text is this. And a more obscure passage than perhaps any other in the Testament so that I don't know for a certainty just what Peter means. I cannot understand it and I cannot explain it. And there has been no one who has explained it. Great. Okay then, let's jump in and explain it. Here we go. What is Peter trying to communicate in these verses? You've read these verses before. They're hard verses. Did Are they saying that Jesus preached to people in hell, giving them a second chance at repentance? Some might say that. I would say no. It's not a biblical idea. That can't be it. Well, maybe maybe it's saying that Jesus went and preached and released those who had repented before the flood from a place called purgatory. That's what some maybe want to say about these these verses, but that's not biblical either. Did he proclaim triumph to fallen angels? Is that what Peter is trying to say in these verses? Well, that has some possibility because the word spirits often means spiritual beings. There has been, brothers and sisters, a ton of ink spilt on these verses, and we can't deep dive. I don't want to take the time. This is not a theological lecture to deep dive. I can direct you to good places to read if you're curious about knowing more. At the end of the day, I'm not going to die on this hill, but here's what I believe that Peter is saying in this context to the church in the first century and to us here today. That Christ in and through the Spirit, preached through Noah a message of repentance and righteousness to unbelievers who were on earth during the time of Noah, but now are spirits in prison. In other words, they are in everlasting judgment. 
in hell. Let me say that one more time. Christ in and through the Spirit preached through his servant Noah a message of repentance and righteousness to unbelievers who were on the earth during the time of Noah, but are now spirits in prison, in other words, those condemned to hell. You say, well, why didn't Peter just say that matter-of-factly? I don't know. Let's look a little more closely. We see that word, he went. We see that word, he went, in verse 19. He went and proclaimed. When we hear that and we think, I think, we often think, well, he went and descended into hell, like we say in the Apostles' Creed. But it doesn't say that. It doesn't say he physically went there. That's a whole nother theological discussions. But just focusing on the idea of Jesus going somewhere, he went. The scriptures are full of instances when God went, when God went down. God went to walk in the garden with Adam and Eve in the cool of the evening. God went down to Babel and the riffraff that was going on there to confuse and to mess up what they were trying to accomplish. He went down to bring judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. The point is simply not that he went spatially somewhere, but that he didn't spiritually address from heaven, but he actually condescended in this proclamation in some way. Well, how did Jesus, before he was made flesh, do that? Well, he did that through the Spirit, through the preaching of Noah. 1 Peter 1.11, speaking of the prophets of old, Peter says this. We're jumping kind of in the middle of a thought here. He says, inquired what person or time, speaking of the prophets, they inquired what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ, right? So the Spirit of Christ was in the prophet Isaiah predicting when the sufferings of Christ would come in time and space. Peter in his second letter, 2 Peter 2 verse 5, he will call Noah a herald of righteousness. And so you have these two notions that Peter brings together of Jesus proclaiming something, of Noah being brought into the picture. Noah, who he says in his second letter, is this herald of righteousness, and these things overlap. And of course, it makes sense, in my opinion, because the context of Peter, the people that Peter is writing to, they're just like Noah. They're a suffering minority that is seeking to point people to life knowing that judgment is coming. You see, that's why Peter makes this comparison. He's encouraging the church. Let's bring this right to where the rubber meets the road. Peter is encouraging the church, saying, as Jesus empowered Noah, so the Spirit of Christ is in you. So don't fear. Freely defend the hope that is in you. You're united to him. You're seated in the heavenly places. You're safe after all. You're safe because you're saved. You're one of his. 
Again, why does Peter do this? I don't know. He liked the story of Noah. And he loved the parallels here. And it's interesting that all these thoughts in, in Peter's writing, all these thoughts, they trigger Peter's thinking and they lead him again to a weird place. They lead him to baptism. Right? The symbolism of baptism. The symbolism of, of water. See, Peter saw in the Old Testament stories, not just instances of God's salvation. And and this is true for us today, too, as we learn to understand and interpret the scriptures. We need to see in the Old Testament not just instances of God's salvation, but pointers to God's final salvation. All of the scripture is about Jesus. So just as Noah was saved through the waters of judgment, just as Israel passed safely through the waters of the Red Sea and the waters of the Jordan, now, through your union with Jesus, through you climbing into the ark that is Jesus, you too are safe. You too are saved from the waters of judgment. You see, in baptism, Peter is saying, we are saved from the water, we are saved by the water. And we often don't think about baptism this way, right? We don't think about the symbolism of baptism. We think about the cleansing symbolism of baptism, right? Washing away of sin. And Peter addresses that here. He says it's not about the water removing dirt or sin. It's about the inward reality that is represented. The appeal to God and his promises. That's where the power lies. That's where safety lies. Does that make sense? How this all ties together in Peter's mind? Though it's... Certainly we could say maybe you could have done this a little clearer for us, Peter. You can take that up with him in the new heavens. It's an encouragement to us as we defend the hope that is in us, as we look to the story of Noah, the proclaimer of righteousness, whom the Spirit of God dwelt. That same Spirit is in you, empowering your words, empowering your proclamation In God's providence, in just a few minutes, I'm going to baptize little shepherd. It's an act that in and of itself won't save him. And you say, well, I thought Peter just said that baptism saves us. Well, Peter does not mean that the act in and of itself saves. But what does he say? Saves. The appeal to God the inward reality that baptism represents. Well, you say, well, shepherd's not making any appeal to God. You're right, he's not. But his parents are. And in the richness and in the fullness and in the unity of the covenant by Austin and Ellen saying, this is, your, this is yours, shepherd. This God is yours. You are his and he is yours as little shepherd climbs into the ark one day, he will be safe and he will be saved. 
Adoniram Judson, who was a well-known missionary to India, his last words on earth before he died were this. He says, I go with the gladness of a boy bounding from school. I feel so strong in Christ. Those words, particularly that last phrase, I think is what Peter wants the church to feel through these words. In the face of fear, in the face of suffering, he says, feel strong in Christ. He is with you. You are safe. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would increasingly teach us how to be a people defensive about our faith in all the right ways and gentleness and in respect, in humility, and yet in zeal. That our fear might be properly placed, giving us boldness to those who can do us no harm. Thank you for the reminder, for the assurance that at the end of the day, it's not up to us. It's your spirit that is at work. It's your spirit that will continue to work and bring to completion that which you have begun. Oh, Father, plant this word deep in us, I pray, and use it for our good and for the glory of your name. In Jesus' name, amen.